0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm
1: Kathy with a C. And this is Season 2 of Killer destinations. Today's destination is Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo was founded in 1603 and was originally a small fishing village called Edo. It eventually became the seat of the Tokugawa shogunate, the military government of Japan at the time, but it was known as Edo until the 19th century. In 1890, the city became known as Toyo, which means eastern capital in English. Interestingly, no official act has ever designated Tokyo as the capital of Japan. As a result, some residents still believe Kyoto is the rightful capital. Today, Tokyo has more than 38 million people living in the metropolitan area and it is the most populated city in the world. Due to the city's size, it's no surprise that Tokyo is home to the busiest intersection in the world. Shibuya Crossing is known by locals as the Shibuya Scramble, which occurs every time the traffic lights turn red. When this happens, vehicles are stopped in every direction, and as many as 2,500 pedestrians cross the intersection from all directions at the same time. Tokyo is also considered to be one of the safest cities in the world, with robberies and homicides rarely occurring. But in 2000, this sense of safety was revealed to be an illusion when the disappearance of one young British woman exposed a predator in their midst.
2: Lucy Blackman was intelligent and attractive. She was the eldest child of Tim Blackman and Jane Steer. Tim was a self-employed builder and property developer, and Jane had trained as a reflexologist. Lucy's sister Sophie was two years younger, and her brother Rupert was five years younger. Lucy had a very middle-class upbringing. Her family took vacations in Spain and on the Isle of Wight, which is an island off the south coast of England. Her father, Tim, was a member of a vintage yacht club and kept a historical sailboat docked on the island. But all was not happy in the black men's Steer home. When Lucy was a teenager, her parents split up. Tim had several affairs and left when Lucy was 17, eventually moving to the Isle of Wight. Lucy, along with her siblings, stayed with her mother in Seven Oaks, which is about an hour south of London, and she barely saw her father for the next two and a half years. Lucy was very aware that money was an issue after the divorce, and when her parents communicated at all, it was typically a fight about money. And with her father gone, her mother had very little extra money and certainly nothing available for anything other than what they needed to live. As a result, Lucy always worked hard and tried to be as self-sufficient as possible by taking a job at a pizza hut and babysitting for neighborhood families. At the age of 18, she left what the British call a fee-paying or independent girls' school. In the U.S., this would be called a private girls' school. Lucy had achieved 3A levels, which is comparable to a U.S. advanced placement course, but going to college was not part of her plan. She wanted to get out into the world as soon as possible. And most of all, she wanted financial independence.
1: After leaving school, Lucy worked for a bank before she got a job as a flight attendant with British Airways. She worked for two years on British Airways long haul routes to Africa and the Americas, earning $18,700 annually. In 2023 dollars, that's about $33,000. She wound up quitting her job because not only did it leave her feeling permanently jet lagged, But she liked to buy nice things, and she was racking up serious credit card debt that her salary just could not cover. But Lucy had a plan. Her best friend Louise, whom she'd met while working at the bank, and then they both went to work for British Airways together, told Lucy they should move to Tokyo and work as a nightclub hostess in the city. Louise's older sister Emma had just returned from Tokyo and told them it was safe and fun. Emma said that there were recruiting agencies in London for hostessing jobs, but it wasn't necessary to use them. She said when they arrived in Tokyo, they could go buy Tokyo Classified Magazine, which would have a lot of job ads for hostesses, and they could take their pick. Tokyo nightclubs were always looking for bubbly, energetic girls, and as former flight attendants who had to deal with all types of people, Lucy and Louise would be a perfect fit. And hostesses could earn almost $1,500 a week, which was a huge increase from the almost $400 a week Lucy was earning as a flight attendant. So the girls decided to give it a try. In May 2000, when Lucy told her parents that she and Louise were going to Tokyo on a 90-day tourist visa, she did not tell them the truth about their plans. She told her father that she would be working in a bar and staying in an apartment owned by her friend Louise's aunt. That word is in quotation marks, in case you can't see that. (laughs) Who, coincidentally, was Japanese and lived in the city. The young women would be able to get cheap plane tickets from their former employer British Airways and would be home by the beginning of August when their tourist visa expired. Lucy told her sister Sophie that she would be back before they even realized she was gone. And once back in the UK, Lucy planned to train as a primary school teacher. But whatever happened, she would earn enough money in Japan to pay off her credit card debts and still have money left over. And Kath, when Lucy left on May 3rd, 2000, Her mother put a card with guardian angels on it in her purse and then placed healing crystals in her luggage just to be on the safe side.
2: In an August 2009 article exclusive to the Daily Mail by Claire Campbell, the author explained the culture of Tokyo nightclub hostessing that Lucy Blackman and her best friend, Louise Phillips, were entering. In Tokyo, Lucy was a gaijin, which means foreigner, and her long blonde hair was something that Japanese men were attracted to. There's a subculture among Japanese men who want to go to these clubs and spend large amounts of money to spend time with attractive foreign women who would pour their drinks, light their cigarettes, and feign interest in whatever the men were saying. The author of the article explained that as a hostess, nothing else was expected or demanded. In other words, no sex work, and it was a safe way to earn money. However, a Tokyo bar hostess is on the fringes of the sex industry in the city, sometimes referred to as the water trade. All jobs in the water trade involve drinking and sex in some form. But Lucy and Louise had done some research. It seemed that the higher the class of the operation, the less actual sex was requested. Once Lucy and Louise arrived, getting hostessing jobs was as easy as Emma had said it would be. They both worked at a nightclub called Casablanca that was located in Rapongi, the city's entertainment district. And since Louise's aunt was fictitious, they stayed in a
1: hostel. When you traveled to Europe, did you ever stay in a hostel? Yes. I never did. Oh, no. We only stayed
2: in a hotel in Cologne, Germany, and it was heaven compared to the hostels that we stayed in, which were very, very smelly. But it was fine. We were young. I remember being in the hotel going, I'm going to actually take a bath.
1: Ooh, I'm not sure I would have done that. I know. That's how desperate I was. (laughs) (laughs) The closest I feel like I came to staying in a hostel, my friends and I were traveling through Italy. I
2: like how you treat it as though it's an STD.
1: (laughs) you're like the closest I came. (laughs) Anyway, you were saying. My friends and I were on a train through Italy. We were actually going from Milan down to Rome. And the train kept breaking down on the tracks until we finally got to Bologna. But we had to get off the train. They had to put it in for repairs. Like it was creeping. I think they might have had like horses bowling it at that point. Right. So we get there. It's about midnight. Bologna at the time was the only city in Italy that had a communist government. And when we were there, they were having a meeting of communist leaders. Okay, this is important. Tuck that away for a second. So at this point, we don't care how much the hotel costs. We are tired. We're dirty. And so we were just looking for any hotel we could find. So we get out of the train station, but it's midnight. It's not like Southern California. Things are closed. So we finally find a hotel that's open. And as we were walking to the hotel, and it was a really nice hotel, we passed a hotel that was closed. It had like boards on the windows, whatever. So we go into the hotel, we negotiate a price that was like 150 bucks. Okay. Which we shouldn't have paid, but whatever. Yeah. They take us to the room, but they take us up the stairs and then they have us walk back down a hallway, down the hallway, down the hallway, down the hallway. We realize we're in the boarded up section of the hotel, the one that we had passed. Oh, that's so creepy. Oh, it gets weirder. I believe because of this communist meeting, all of the heat vents were turned on high. It was so hot in our rooms. Because we couldn't control the heat that was done by a master control. In
2: other words, were they trying to show off that they had
1: heat? I totally think that's what it was. Kath, this was November when we were there. It was so hot. We could not stand on the floor without shoes on. Oh, how crazy. And we had to keep our windows open, even though it was 20 degrees outside. But our door did not lock.
2: Oh, that is so creepy. Now,
1: there were four of us. So really between us, at least three of us would have gotten away. So, you know, we were doing rock, (laughs) paper, scissors. You would have
2: like thrown (laughs) one of your girlfriends, trampled over her body. Hey, you know what? Whatever
1: it takes, she would have understood. But it was just so weird. We packed all these chairs up against the door and none of us really got any sleep that night because clearly there was something going on there in terms of like you heard all these men, you heard party sound coming through the vents. And we're like, oh, my God, what did we get ourselves into? Thankfully, nothing. Thankfully, nothing. But that's why I don't stay at hostels. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Well, it sounds like your
2: hotel was was much worse off than... Exactly. Was more ho than tell. (laughs) Way worse than the hostels I was in. Although I do have a two second story. Okay. When we were going through Europe, you know, we had our year rails. And so it was my sister and your sister. We pay extra money to get a couchette and we're all excited because we want to lay down. What is that? Oh, it's, a, it's a, a car. Yeah, a car. So we get this couchette, we fold down the couches and we all three lay down. Well, my sister's by the window, your sister's in the middle and I'm closest to the door. And so I hear this like door jingling and I kind of open my eyes and this man opens the door and he kind of looks at us and then he motions his hands. He does not speak English. He motions his hands for us to scoot over. And in my head, I'm like, oh, this is weird, but maybe this is what they do. Like we paid for this buddy, but sure, come on into our couchette. So I, you know, hit your sister, like, move over. This guy's laying down next to us. So he comes in and he's in a military uniform. I believe he was Polish. Anyway, he lays down on the couchette and rather than sleeping, he tries to talk to me. Now, it was bizarre, but whatever. I'm like, you know, I only speak English. Then he gives up. He takes his shoes off. Kathy, the smell almost choked me to death. And in my head, I'm like, is he so oblivious that he doesn't realize how skanky this is? Yes. Like my sister woke up, rolled over, and her eyes practically bugged out of her head. She was like, no wonder it smells in here. Anyway, getting back to the story, Lucy and Louise knew the kind of water traders they were going to be, or they thought they did. There were these supposedly super exclusive nightclubs where the girls just had to listen to the men's jokes, light their cigarettes, and smile. The idea was to lure a rich catch into a fantasy love affair while the bill was settled on a corporate expense account.
1: So, Kathy, basically what I was seeing on some of the videos is that these men would come into these places and they just wanted a girlfriend. They wanted the fantasy of a girlfriend and they wanted people to know that they were capable of getting such a beautiful girlfriend. So there are two things that they did. One of them is that they would pay these girls to go hold their hand and walk through like the main part of the city with them so that people would see, oh, look at that man and the beautiful woman. He must be important, successful, handsome. And the young woman was interviewed for this and she said, he knows it's fake. I know it's fake. Every foreigner knows it's fake, but none of the Japanese people seem to know it is.
2: That is so bizarre and so sad.
1: Then the other thing that they could do, you know, we were talking about the sex trade and as hostesses, there was no sex required. But what the girls could do to make extra money was arrange a Dohan. And this was something that was arranged with the club owner and it would allow their customers with whom they were just feigning interest. And, oh, (laughs) you're the most handsome man I've ever met. Let me light your cigarette. Exactly. Here's a drink. They would arrange with him for them to pay so that they could pay to take this hostess out. The nightclub owner would obviously get probably the biggest stake in all of it, but then some of the money would funnel down to the hostess so that she could make extra money than what she was bringing in just in tips during her regular job.
2: So do you know whether the club that Lucy and Louise worked at was owned by a woman or a man? It was a man. So every time they had a quote unquote customer who come in who they would fawn over, it was the man who was paid and he would trickle down the money to them. Yes. That's a shame. <laughs> now, I
1: believe there were tips that the girls probably got, but it wasn't the same amount of money that the Sure, this guy's making serious cash. Right. But with the Dohans that they would go on, the cash went to him first and then it went down. While Lucy was in Tokyo, she called and emailed her parents and sister several times a week. She told them she was homesick and she missed them, but there was a little more to it than that. According to a May 2001 article in Time.com by journalist Evan Allen Wright, Lucy emailed her sister Sophie that working in the club was like being a flight attendant without the altitude. Basically, she had all walks of life coming in, all different attitudes, egos, demands, what have you, and she still had to smile and help them and let them go on their merry way. She also admitted to her sister, sometimes the customer spoke English with such thick accents that she couldn't respond. All she could do was not. But Lucy told her she was amazed at how much money she was making just pretending to listen to the men. Lucy also once told her mother in a phone call that a customer had offered her a fantastic sum of money to sleep with him. Which kind of cracks me up. She told her mom this. Which shows she wasn't serious about taking it. Well, yeah. And that's what she told her mom that she laughed off the proposal. She reminded her mother that her job was just to pour drinks, light cigarettes and discuss boring subjects like volcanoes. Volcanoes. (laughs) Lucy and Louise shared a room at the Yoyoji Gaijin house. By the start of her second month in Tokyo, Lucy had not managed to save any money, but she was finally getting used to the culture shock she'd experienced when she moved to the city. She still emailed her sister almost every day and wrote that she was already earning $1,450 a week. And she expected the amount to increase as regular customers began specifically requesting her.
2: Do we know why she hadn't saved any money? She was making over three times what she was used to making.
1: I have to assume she's in a new city. She wants to explore. She wants to have fun. It's probably more expensive, I'm assuming. I have to imagine that. Absolutely. Lucy was also enjoying the Roppongi nightlife and had gone on a few actual dates not the Dohans that I talked about earlier, with an American Marine who was stationed on a U.S. aircraft carrier in Japan. On July 1st, 2000, this is almost two months into her stay in Tokyo, Lucy went on a Dohan with a customer from her hostessing job at Casablanca. The man, whose name Lucy did not share with anyone, had offered her a prepaid mobile phone if she would accompany him to a restaurant near the beach. Now, Kath, I didn't understand the reason why this was, but what I read is that this was a very attractive gift because it was almost impossible, at least at that time, so this is 23 years ago, for foreigners to purchase Japanese cell phones.
2: Louise was still in bed when Lucy left, but they had plans to see each other that evening, along with the American Marine Lucy had been dating. Lucy phoned Louise three times that day, first at 1.30 in the afternoon to say she had met her lunch date, then at 5 o'clock to say, I'm being taken to the sea, and finally at 7 p.m. when she said, I'll be back in a half hour. Lucy phoned the Marine a few minutes later with the same message, but no one heard from her again. The next day, Louise received a call on her cell phone from a man who spoke in a thick accent and identified himself as Akira Takagi. He told her, Lucy has joined a newly risen cult. She is safe
1: and training in a hut in Chiba. The newly risen part is kind of what stuck out to me. The whole thing. Well, yes, but I just thought that was really strange phrasing. Like a newly risen
2: cult. Like you haven't heard about it, but she's in Chiba. And it's rising. Right, exactly. (laughs) Louise called Lucy's mom, Jane Steer, on July 5th, two days after she last spoke with Lucy. When Jane received the call, she immediately phoned Sophie at work. Sophie left for Tokyo the next day. Lucy's father, Tim Blackman, planning for the worst, went to his bank and secured a line of credit for $29,000. He arrived in Tokyo about a week later after turning the day-to-day business operations over to his partners. Sophie did not sleep her first eight days in Tokyo, sweating from the intense heat and becoming disoriented in the labyrinth-like train stations. In their first two weeks in the city, Sophie and her father printed and distributed 30,000 posters with Lucy's picture on them. They talked to anyone who might have known her, and they met with the police, which turned out to be an exercise in futility and frustration. Among all the possible leads, the most traceable should have been the four calls that had been made during and after Lucy's Dohan. After all, the cell phone she used to make the calls had been provided by her date. However, Tim was told by Japanese authorities that they were unable to get any information due to privacy laws, and they said the technical means of doing so was beyond the capability of Japanese telecom companies.
1: And that's when I call BS. Oh, totally.
2: Anyway, Lucy's father, Tim, was also frustrated that the owner of the club where Lucy worked was unable to provide the police with any solid information about the customer his daughter had met with while working there. Tim said, my daughter was introduced to this man at the club she worked in a few days before she disappeared. How could the club owner not know anything about him? Tim and Sophie also wondered if Tokyo police weren't being helpful because Lucy was working in Japan illegally. Tourist visas, like the one Lucy had, strictly prohibited work. Lucy's family was afraid the authorities might take the attitude that whatever happened served her right.
1: The day after Tim arrived in Tokyo, he held a press conference with the assistance of the British Embassy. He rejected the suggestions that Lucy had run away to escape her credit card debt or had willingly joined a religious cult. After he did this, primetime news programs in Japan began running the story of Lucy's disappearance. Her sister Sophie was quoted as saying, We wanted to make it impossible for anyone to say we're not investigating this. The Blackmans worked every possible angle in pushing for an investigation into Lucy's disappearance. A friend of Tim's, who had once worked as an airport limo driver in London, had given several rides to Sir Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Group. Virgin Atlantic is probably the Virgin Group's best-known subsidiary. The driver phoned Sir Richard's office, and a few days later, Virgin offered to help the Blackmans open a Tokyo office, For their investigation
2: i love the fact that this limo driver's like let me make a phone call
1: and actually worked yeah tim and sophie established an office near the casablanca nightclub where lucy worked and established a confidential hotline because they weren't sure if foreigners in the city were treated the same way they actually had the hotline staffed by sympathetic expatriates and this was for people who had information but were afraid to go to the police Initially, they offered a reward of 9,500 British pounds, which was about $15,000 at the time. But this was increased to 100,000 pounds, which was $152,000 after a donation by an anonymous businessman. Tim Blackman and Jane Steer actually called and emailed the British Foreign Ministry until they were able to work their way up to Prime Minister Tony Blair's office. By coincidence, Prime Minister Blair and Foreign Secretary Robin Cook were scheduled to be in Japan a couple of weeks later for a G8 economic summit. Tim was able to meet with both men, and they promised to speak to the Japanese Prime Minister about Lucy. And this conversation brought almost immediate results. Kath, soon after the G8 meeting, Tim Blackman was told by police that they had suddenly solved all of the technical and legal problems involved in tracing the phone calls Lucy made on the day she disappeared
2: how miraculous.
1: It's a ding, Right.
2: By the end of July, Lucy's face was on the front pages of Japan's and overseas newspapers. TV reporters descended on the Blackmans following their every move while in Tokyo. Many articles dwelt on the seamier aspects of Roppongi and speculated that Lucy had been caught up in drugs or an s and cult. On August 1st, one month after Lucy disappeared, Tokyo police received a letter from someone purporting to be Lucy, and it said, I'm doing what I want, so please leave me alone. Detectives and Tim Blackman immediately dismissed the letter as a fake. Meanwhile, leads had been coming into the hotline the Blackman set up. Three foreign women came forward with remarkably similar stories. Each had been working at Roppongi Hostess Clubs within the past few years and gone on a dohan to a seaside restaurant with a wealthy, well-dressed Japanese businessman. Each of the women reported blacking out and waking up hours or days later in this man's apartment. Eventually, eight women came forward, and all of them had initially gone to the police but were ignored. However, With the calls to the hotline and the information from the mobile phone Lucy used on the day she was last seen, police now had a name. So, Kath, even though police had a name in late July or early August, it wasn't until October, specifically October 12th of 2000, four and a half months after Lucy vanished, that Tokyo police detained a suspect. 48-year-old Japanese businessman Joji Obara was taken to the police station from his Tokyo home and questioned by investigators. Kath, one of the things that I read was not only did they know his name, but the phone placed Lucy with him shortly before her disappearance. While this was happening, additional officers searched several of his residential properties across Japan for evidence that would lead to Lucy Blackman. At these locations, police found a vast amount of drugs and several bottles of chloroform, which obviously can be used to render people unconscious. They found evidence that would prove to be instrumental in their investigation. Hundreds of videotapes and Obara's personal journals.
1: Kath, when police searched Obara's homes, and my understanding is there were four or five of them, as one has. Right.
2: (laughs) Particularly on the seaside.
1: Exactly. Same. They discovered that Obara was what can only be described as a hoarder, hence all the journals and videotapes you just talked about. There were stacks of old car batteries, broken television sets, receipts, journals, and other personal tape recordings dating back to the 1970s.
2: Oh my lord.
1: Yes. And this is such a freaky thing that happened. As they were entering one of his houses, in front of the side door, there was a ceramic life-size statue of a German shepherd that was bearing its fangs. They go into the house to search, and one of the investigators opened a freezer and found a real German shepherd frozen in a solid block. Next to it was a bouquet of roses and some dog food. Oh! Can you imagine, though, like, no. oh, nice little ceramic puppy. Hi, poochie ah! poochie. Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> Obara apparently said later, Kath, that he had preserved his dog with the hope that one day science would enable him to, quote, reanimate my loving pet into a clone dog, end quote. The biggest haul from his residence, though, Kath, were these videotapes. I could not get an exact number. There are no actual court records from Japan that we could find. All of this information is cobbled together with numerous news articles, magazine articles, reports from others. A lot of media sources, but no official government sources. That's a great way to put it. And nothing was the same. And you'll see as we get further, we'll explain that more. It is incredible how many facts were different depending on the article. Right. Now, this was one of them. The number of videotapes seized from the house ranged from 200 to 4,000. The most repeated number I saw was 400, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Let's just say there were lots and lots of tapes. Right. These tapes showed dozens of apparently unconscious women being assaulted by Obara. And in this Time.com article, police sources said that in many of the tapes, Obara wore nothing but a Zorro mask. The next part kind of follows this. In some of the reports, there were similarities between Obara's alleged crimes in these videos and a theme that is commonly depicted in Japanese pornography, which is men having intercourse with sleeping women. When police arrested O'Bara, he initially denied knowing who Lucy Blackman was until police found blonde hairs that matched Lucy's in one of his seacoast condominiums and then found a roll of film that once they developed it, saw that it contained pictures of Lucy taken near that same location. But without a body, police could not bring charges against him. As police began looking through the videotapes that they found at O'Bara's residence, they were able to find other victims including the three foreign hostesses who had called the tip line, and they agreed to cooperate with the prosecution. O'Bara was charged with several counts of rape and placed in jail.
2: Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you.
1: As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
2: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
1: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
2: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50%
0: off at rosettastone.com slash today today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Joji
2: Obara was born Kim Sung Jong in August 1952 to Korean parents living in Osaka, Japan. His family was poor, but through hard work, his father worked his way up from being an impoverished scrap collector to becoming the wealthy owner of numerous properties and pachinko parlors, which are similar to casino slot machines. As a result of this newfound wealth, Obara was able to attend the best private schools in Tokyo and had a personal tutor that prepared him for entry into an impressive prep school. When he was 17, his father died, leaving Obara property in Osaka and Tokyo. This paved the way for him to finish his education, and he received degrees in politics and law. He traveled quite a bit and became a naturalized citizen of Japan, where he legally changed his name to Joji Obara. Through his real estate investments in the 1980s, he was worth almost $40 million. Well, had started getting into real estate speculation just before the recession hit in the 1990s and as a result, lost almost all of his fortune. He was pursued by creditors. And according to the time.com article referenced earlier, his mother, who still controlled the family's pachinko and slot machine business, helped bail him out. And Kath, I read that at one point she paid one of his creditors $33 million. Following these business failings, Obara reportedly used his company as a front to launder money for a local Yakuza syndicate, which is essentially the Japanese mafia.
1: Kath, what's interesting about that is I had read in just a couple of articles, and again, the sourcing. So I didn't put this in here in any sort of depth. But there were rumors because his father was involved in pachinko, which is gambling, that his father was mixed up with the Yakuza and they were the ones who actually killed him. Really? Yeah, I didn't see it anywhere from a source that I thought was reputable enough to... You're like, so I'm not going to write it down, but I'm going to talk about it. I'm just going <laughs> to add a bit into this so that I still get the information out there, but it I'm not taking responsibility.
2: <laughs> it doesn't count if we're just armchairing it. Exactly. <laughs> we're
1: just speculating. <laughs> As
2: a side note, I had a friend after college went to teach in Japan and I don't know, he was six foot something.
1: He was like six foot eight. He was really tall. Yeah.
2: But he was saying that it's not uncommon for the Yakuza to have missing fingers.
1: As in like people they attack or members of the Yakuza? No, members of the Yakuza. They cut off their fingers as a sign of solidarity. And so the police can catch them easier. Okay.
2: I don't know, but it made me look up articles. And Mm -hmm. I read that just because you have a missing digit in Japan does not mean you're a member of the Yakuza. But like half of the Yakuza supposedly have missing fingers. I read someplace else that it is a symbol that you are repentant for something. So I don't know. But he said when he would talk to people who had missing fingers, he'd be freaked out.
1: Oh, I bet. Especially because he was such a mild-mannered guy. Totally.
2: <laughs> Prior to O'Bara's arrest in connection with Lucy's disappearance, he had only one notable brush with the law. In 1998, he was arrested in a woman's restroom in a beach town. He was in drag and was attempting to videotape a woman using the toilets. He was charged with a misdemeanor and fined $75.
1: During the investigator's searches of Obara's properties, they discovered hospital receipts linking him to a former Roppongi hostess, an Australian named Corita Ridgeway. According to hospital records, in 1992, he took a gravely ill Corita to Hedishima Hospital, telling nurses she had eaten bad shellfish. Sadly, after a few days, the hospital declared her brain dead, and her family made the decision to remove her from life support and allow her to die peacefully. Initially the cause of Karita's death was listed as hepatitis E, so no further investigation was made by the Australian embassy or Japanese police despite requests from her family. Kath, it was only after the arrest of Obara in 2000, so this is 8 years later, that her death was ruled a homicide. In the items recovered during the search of the home of Obara the hoarder, police recovered a videotape of him raping an unconscious Carita, And in one of the journals that they recovered, there was an entry that read, "Carita Ridgeway, too much chloroform.
2: How heartbreaking for her family.
1: It is, but at the same time... That's
2: true. It's like now they know.
1: Exactly. So this is what's crazy, Kath. Due to an administrative fluke, Karita Ridgway’s liver had been preserved at Tokyo Women’s Hospital where the autopsy had originally been performed. Wait, this is how many years later? Eight. Oh my gosh. Once Obara came under investigation for Lucy’s disappearance and his other assaults, medical examiners tested Karita’s liver for chloroform, which proved to be present in toxic levels. They contacted the police with these results, and a manslaughter charge in connection with Karita Ridgway’s death was added to Obara’s growing list of crimes. On February
2: 9th, 2001, Japanese police found Lucy Blackman's body. According to ABC News, authorities found parts of a woman's body in a small cave about 750 feet from an apartment owned by Joji Ibarra. Police found a severed head encased in concrete as well as the bones of a torso and hands that were buried in the sand. Using dental records, authorities were able to confirm it was Lucy. Coroners were still investigating the cause of death. The Tokyo police initially announced they would charge Joji Obara with abandoning Lucy's corpse. The identification brought some closure to an unimaginable ordeal that began more than seven months prior. Upon hearing the news of the positive identification of her remains, the Blackman family released a statement to the BBC and said it was a very sad and traumatic time. Tim Blackman knew O'Bara was responsible for his daughter's disappearance. In an interview with the BBC, he said, It's been an extremely traumatic time for us, particularly when this man was originally arrested. We started to fear the worst at that stage. I think we started to feel that Lucy had run into an awful situation and that potentially what he had administered to her could have been fatal. In London, british Foreign Secretary Cook also offered his condolences. He said Tim Blackman and the whole family were very much in his thoughts. He greatly admired their courage, and the task now was to bring the killer to justice.
1: Within a short time, additional details of finding Lucy's remains became public. Obara's very upscale seaside apartment, which was where police found the blonde hairs and roll of film with Lucy's pictures, was only a one-minute walk from where Lucy was found. Lucy was found in a rock cave calf that was about 15 feet from the water. This was a really short cave that was open on top so light could stream in and you could see pieces of trash that had blown in there as well as a discarded bathtub that had been turned upside down. Over the course of four months in which the Tokyo police officers combed the area, no one bothered to look underneath this discarded bathtub. Eventually, at about 9 a.m. on February 9th, Police revisited the cave they had searched four months prior in the fall. This time, someone looked in the area around the bathtub and they found Lucy's body buried approximately one and a half feet below the sand. Her body was cut into eight pieces. Now, at first, investigators were unable to identify the corpse. As we had said, the head was entombed in cement and then the other body parts were so badly decayed that even the gender could not be determined. When post-mortem examiners cut into the cement encasing the head with the hope of finding teeth to match with dental records, they immediately found one identifiable feature that was unmistakably foreign in Japan. Long, natural blonde hair. On April 6, 2001, 10 months after Lucy disappeared, Joji Obara, who consistently maintained his innocence, was charged with her death. Police believed the death was a rape that turned into a murder. I could not find a definitive source that listed when trial actually began. Two dates were given depending on the source. One of them was July 4th, 2001, which would have been fewer than two months after he was charged in Lucy's death. The other was October 10th of 2002. The trial lasted four and a half to six years depending on when it started. Years. Years. Okay, when you told me that, it tripped me out. I know. So you got to explain that. That's nuts. Oh, I can't explain a whole lot of it, but thanks for (laughs) that. (laughs) But apparently, this isn't uncommon in Japan for trials that are as complex as this one. I was reading segments where it said they just went through 30 days of hearings, and then there was a break. And then they'd go through 20 days of hearings, and then there'd be some sort of break, whether it was a month or two or what have you. But this just went on and on.
2: And we thought the O.J. Simpson case lasted long. And what was that, it four did. months? Yeah. It seemed like an eternity. It
1: really did. During trial, it was revealed that one month after O'Bara was arrested and charged with raping the three foreign women, he sent a rambling letter to the media. In it, O'Bara wrote, quote, These ladies who are supposed to be victims are all foreign hostesses or sex club girls. Many took cocaine or other drugs in front of me, and all of them agreed to have sex for money. End quote. After this was published, Kath, the women came forward and told a different story to Time.com journalist Evan Allen Wright. They said Obara met with them in hostess clubs and invited them on Dohans, these are the paid dates, drove them to the sea, and lured them into his condominium using a variety of methods. He invited one woman over and offered to cook her dinner. He asked another to accompany him to a party later in the evening and said, no, but you can stick around here and we'll watch a Mariah Carey concert on TV. And another, he simply drove to his building and asked her to help him carry up some boxes from the car.
2: You know what's scary about this is that it's such benign things. You know what I mean? They're just like regular
1: guy kind of things. No warning signs. Right. Once he got them inside, he would keep the conversation light. According to the women, inevitably, he would urge them to try a rare wine, which he would tell them came from India or the Philippines. To account for the funny taste of this drug-laced beverage, Obara told his victims it contained special herbs. There was one victim he coaxed into making a good luck toast that he said required her to down the entire glass in a single gulp. And he warned her if she didn't drink all of it, she wouldn't have good luck.
2: Videotapes then told the rest of the story. The tape showed Obara lugging unconscious women onto his bed. Now, calf. I read somewhere that he was around 5'5", five, five, according to his own assessment, which probably means he's what, like 5'1"? 5'1", yeah. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs> and like a buck ten soaking wet. Exactly. I actually read that he wore, he didn't refer to them as lifts, he referred to them as stilts in his shoes. So I'm guessing that they weren't actually stilts, but probably significant lifts, which I think probably is what got him to the 5'5". Five five.
2: Did he borrow them from Tom Cruise?
1: I think he did. <laughs> I had that same thought.
2: <laughs> anyway, so... Lucy was at least a couple inches taller than him. That's what we read in one of the articles. So he must have had a heck of a time carrying these women. Police had already leaked details of Abara having tied some of the women down, penetrating them with foreign objects, and sodomizing many of them. He assaulted most of his victims for 12 hours or more. That's horrific. To ensure they remained unconscious... He would place a cloth soaked in a drug, and they know for sure that it was chloroform in at least one of the cases, over their mouths. The women would then awaken 24 or even 48 hours later, sick and disoriented from the drugs, of course. As we know from Carita, chloroform is toxic to the liver and can be fatal. Each of the women recounted waking up vomiting, being unable to stand, and crawling to the bathroom. Few had any idea what happened. I read that Obara would sometimes dress them in the clothes they came in before they regained consciousness, and then he would say things like, oh, you're such a fun girl, you drank the entire bottle of vodka. And then he told another victim, oh, there'd been a gas leak at his place. Obara's activities during the first days of Lucy's disappearance were revealed at trial, and what was revealed devastated the Blackmans. In addition to what they learned about his assaults on other women, they also learned that late on the night of July 2nd, the day after Lucy's dohan, Obara called area hospitals asking how to treat a victim of a drug overdose. The next day, Obara purchased a chainsaw, cement mix, and other tools from a hardware store. That same afternoon, the manager of Obara's seaside condominium called police to report a tenant who is behaving suspiciously. According to the Time.com article, even in the terse language of police reports leaked to the media, the scene painted a graphic picture. When Obara answered the door to the police, he had cement mix on his hands. Immediately suspicious, police asked to take a look around his apartment. So Kath, Obara consented. This is two days after his dope-on with Lucy. So he tells cops, sure, come on in, take a look around. They notice that he's agitated when they get closer to the bathroom door. They say, hey, can we look in here because the door is closed? And he says, no, they left.
1: I think they said, "Okay, thanks. We're going to go now. Peace out. Yeah. So they left. The end. They never pressed the issue.
2: I have no idea what search and seizure looks like in Japan or what's required. But how do they not get a search warrant?
1: They were just responding to a manager of a condominium complex calling about somebody making a lot of noise. But can you imagine when they
2: finally put a name to him, which was less than a month later, Mm -hmm. really, going, oh, that's that's the guy whose apartment we went to and had cement mix on his hand. And
1: wouldn't let us go into the bathroom, but let us search everywhere else. Right. Neighbors subsequently reported seeing Obara that same evening, pacing the small beach that was adjacent to their apartment building. The next day, records showed that Obara was treated at a hospital for extensive bug bites as a result of being outside all night. Despite all this information, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police failed to thoroughly search the area around Obara's apartment until early February, eight months after the police first visited Obara at his apartment. You know, we're casting shade through some of our tone and through obviously some of the things we're saying, but we weren't the only ones because it was reported that even hardened reporters believed that police had known the location of Lucy's remains for months. Respected weeklies in Japan hinted that the remains had been left undisturbed in order to somehow trap Obara. According to the Time.com article, the police blew the murder case against Obara by failing to discover the body much sooner. As we said, Lucy's corpse was so badly decayed that the autopsy was unable to reveal her cause of death. Authorities had hinted that they possessed a video of Obara assaulting Lucy, but because they could not find proof of chloroform in her liver, they could never directly link Obara to Lucy's murder. Are you saying that a lot of the articles you read talked about the cops knowing? There were a lot of articles that basically never overtly stated it, but rather intimated the fact that there were too many clusters along the way for this to have been done accidentally.
2: So are they thinking, these reporters who are speculating, Mm because it's total speculation, speculation, absolutely. Are they speculating that the police were wanting Obara to visit where he buried her?
1: That was one of the theories. They were hoping to be able to catch him with her because then it's a solid sure thing. But if that was actually the case, it was really badly planned because, like has been said, her body was so badly decomposed, they couldn't find a cause of death. And then as
2: far as the videotape goes, nothing else surfaces about a videotape.
1: Not with Lucy. As far as we know. It was just the pictures that were on a roll of film that had to be developed. OK, so there was no
2: video of her being assaulted. No. OK. On April 24, 2007, the verdict was announced. Obara was found not guilty for the death of Lucy Blackman. The cause of death could not be determined, as we said, and the prosecution could not produce any forensic evidence linking Obara to her death. Presiding Judge Stoma Tochigi said there was no evidence to link the suspect directly to the dismembering and burying of her body. And Kath, one of the things I read in just various articles after the not guilty verdict was that people were unimpressed by the fact that they felt there was so much circumstantial evidence, but they didn't feel that the judge weighed it as heavily. And frankly, I have no idea about Japanese jurisprudence. But here, circumstantial evidence and direct evidence have the same weight.
1: Well, and my understanding is, in reading some of the articles, is that circumstantial evidence does not have the same weight in Japan. It does have a weight to it, but by no means is it considered to be equal. It seems as if the Japanese legal system relies very heavily on confessions. Oh, that's interesting. Maybe it's the whole honor.
2: Maybe. Who knows? But yeah, like here, the jury gets to decide. Just because of circumstantial evidence doesn't mean it's going to go down in a fiery ball of flames.
1: Most countries do not have the protections that the United States does. It's not a perfect judicial system. I'm not trying to say that by any stretch of the imagination. It's freaking great. But I dare you to find one better. Honestly, we're very lucky.
2: Lucy's father told the press... The prosecution were horrified. I mean, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police. You could hear their jaws dropping on their chest when the announcement was made in court. They were devastated. For Karita Ridgway's family, the outcome was different. Because there were toxicological tests showing chloroform in her system and the fact that he drove her to the hospital that night, Obar was found guilty of manslaughter. He received a sentence of life in prison for her death, and he was also convicted of eight rapes in total. After the verdict, Lucy's sister Sophie said, the verdict is what it is, and the guy's going to be in prison for life. And that's what was always important. He would not be out on the streets. So I think I decided quite quickly that that was going to have to be sufficient.
1: It's a good way not to become bitter. Oh, totally. Because I have to imagine that would be really hard. Outside of court,
2: Carita's father, Nigel Ridgway, said that there was never a day that went by that he didn't think of his daughter. Carita's mom, Samantha, said, You don't want to think someone you love died a horrible death. It makes it so much worse. You never really get over it. It just won't go away.
1: The decision to acquit Obara in the Lucy Blackman case received a lot of criticism. The public prosecutor appealed all of the Blackman related verdicts based on forensic information that had not been available during the original trial. Which is another point of frustration. Nobody reveals what that is. Exactly. On December 16, 2008, an appeals court found Joji Obara guilty on the charges of abduction, dismemberment, and disposal of Lucy's body. His defense attorney filed an appeal, and it was rejected in December 2010 by the Supreme Court of Japan which also upheld his life sentence. Now, Kath, apparently in Japan, it is not uncommon for people to offer condolence money if something happens to a relative. So if somebody dies, like there's a car accident, if maybe there's some tangential or direct correlation, that's what they do. It was revealed after the trial that Lucy's dad, Tim Blackman, accepted nearly 450,000 pounds, which in 2023 dollars, that's 1.2 million dollars, from a friend of Jojo Barra's. It was ostensibly done as a gesture of condolence in the form of a payment for the loss of Lucy. But it was money from Joji. Technically, it was money from his friend. But I mean, did Joji give the money? Is that the presumption? The presumption is yes, but there's no direct correlation there. Interesting. When Obara was acquitted of Lucy's murder, rumors began that the payment had influenced the acquittal. Obara had made this gesture to a number of his victims, including Lucy's mother and sister, But while he and others no doubt thought this gesture might buy him some grace with the court, he was wrong. The judge told him before handing down the verdict that he attached no importance to the gesture in deciding his fate and then sentenced him to life in prison for his crimes. Lucy's mother, Jane Steer, branded her ex-husband a Judas for accepting the cash. But Tim defended himself by saying eight years of constant travel to Japan, first looking for Lucy and then attending the trial, took a huge toll on his family's finances. Plus, he used the bulk of the money to set up the Lucy Blackman Trust. It was originally established to support British missing persons victims overseas. But over the years, the mission has grown. The core mission of the trust remains providing families with information, advice, and logistical support throughout a missing persons case overseas. But with the skills, knowledge, and contacts the charity has made over the last 20 years, they are now able to help victims of any type of serious crime, not just missing persons. In a Daily Mail article by Becky Evans in
2: October 2013, it was reported that a coroner's inquest at Croydon Coroner's Court in England was still unable to determine how Lucy Blackman died 13 years prior in Japan. At the inquest, there was testimony that there were prior postmortems in Japan and the United Kingdom, which revealed Rohypnol, the date rape drug, in Lucy's system. It was also reported that an unidentified black substance was found in her mouth. However, Coroner Dr. Roy Palmer said, It's been an awful long time, I know. I think it's the longest case I can think of without being concluded. Even now, we don't have all the answers we'd like. He told Lucy's family, I'm so very, very sorry you lost Lucy in such sad circumstances and that no one's been able to give you the answers that would in any way satisfy you. After the hearing, Lucy's father, Tim, said he really hoped they could have gone through it all and come up with some suggestion of how Lucy died. Tim added that he felt let down by the Japanese court system, where verdicts are determined by judges rather than juries. And in his opinion, the court system was simply not geared to deal with a case and trial of the nature of Lucy's. They depend, as you said earlier, so heavily on confessions. In 2018, Tim Blackman marked what would have been Lucy's 40th birthday with a vow to stop Joji Obara from ever being freed from prison. In an article published in the British paper, The Mirror, Reporter Amy Claire Martin wrote that the Blackman family was worried that O'Bara could be eligible for parole in 2020, which at the time was just two years away. When O'Bara was jailed in 2008, the fact that he was not convicted of murder meant he was spared a death sentence and instead got life in prison. But, like in the U.S., it does not actually mean life in prison. It was reported that under Japanese law, life in prison meant a minimum of 20 years. Taking into account the seven years he spent in custody during his long trial, in 2018, O'Bara had already been incarcerated for 18 years. And at 20 years, they feared he could put in an application for parole.
1: Speaking ahead of Lucy's birthday, Tim said he did not feel anger but intense sorrow when he thinks of his daughter's murderer, whom he described as a monster. Tim said... If I thought he was going to be eligible for parole at some point, I would really seriously look into doing everything I could to stop it. He has never taken any responsibility, admitted guilt, or shown any contrition. As far as we know, that hasn't happened. And he doesn't appear to be dead. We did search that as well. Because he would be 71 years old now. Time has not lessened the pain of losing his sharp and funny daughter. He told the reporter, "'Every day you think about what she'd be doing now, "'whether she would be married, "'whether I'd have grandchildren by her now. "'It leaves a constant chasm of emptiness "'when you lose someone young like that.'" Lucy's mom, Jane Steer, said, "'I think when you say someone's brokenhearted, "'I am brokenhearted. "'I have a pain there that just never goes away. "'I miss the smell of her, I miss her smile, "'but I just have to live with it. "'It's very hard.'" It's not the right way round for a parent to bury a child. Thank you for listening. And on July 26th, the day after we drop this episode, Netflix is actually releasing a movie about the same story. So listen to us, then listen to them, listen to them, then listen to us. Just make sure you come back to us. And be sure to follow us at
2: Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram and Facebook.